Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Full Spectrum Podcast brought to you by the Communications Group of Kelly Dry and Warren. My name is Brad Currier, an associate in the Communications Practice Group. Today, I'm joined by Steve Augustino, a partner in the Communications Practice Group. And today, we're going to bring you an update on the enforcement actions of the FCC and communications generally. And after a quiet beginning of the year on the enforcement front, the PI FCC recently released a number of big-ticket enforcement actions. The actions touch upon old favorites like slamming and cramming and pirate radio, as well as new issues like roll call completion. Congress also took a hard look at robocalls and highlighted FCC enforcement efforts in the area. We'll talk about some of the major enforcement actions over the past month and provide insight on what might be coming up on the horizon, including... A little spoiler alert that the FCC may be taking enforcement up a notch in prominence. So with that, I'll turn it over to Steve, who will talk about what's been going on in robocalling. All right. Well, well thanks, Brad, and, and thanks, everybody, for joining our podcast again. This, as you know, is a regular discussion of enforcement actions at the FCC. Uh, we took a little bit of a pause after uh, the the change in administrations, but I think the commission is hit, hitting its stride now, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Where I want to start is with robocalls. Uh, There was a recent hearing before the Senate Commerce Committee in early April dealing specifically with robocall. And what was notable about that is that it included as one of the witnesses Adrian Abramovich, who is one of the uh, targets of the FCC's enforcement NALs, in fact, is a target of $120 million proposed fine by the FCC. So it was very significant and very unusual to see the target of a major enforcement action testifying before Congress. Uh, in fact, he was there. Uh, he made clear he was there because he was compelled to be there. Uh, he did not want to be there. He was responding to a a subpoena. And in fact, he discussed generally the industry practices, but he was trying to draw the line and saying he was uh, invoking his Fifth Amendment right and not talking about the NAL specifically and the actions that led to that. Nevertheless, it was quite a lot of theater uh, with some real pointed discussions between Mr. Abramovich and the senators about the actions. Um, He was definitely taking some, some difficult questions. There were allegations that he had, in fact, waived his Fifth Amendment rights, threats that maybe Congress would um, hold him in contempt for not answering those questions. So it was quite unusual, uh, but we did learn a little bit more about uh, his his response to the NAL as well as the commission's theories and their approaches here. Right. And then that case is ongoing, too. So that's part of where Abramovich is coming from, that there's still to come in a next step with the FCC actually imposing a fine potentially or adjudicating his case in response to the NAL. And it's interesting that you brought up the NAL, Steve, because the other thing that made it interesting is that 
attached to Mr. Bromovich's publicly released remarks was his response that he submitted to the FCC to the proposed forfeiture. Now, which, usually, which is not usually made public. No, exactly. We don't normally see that. Such responses are usually subject to confidentiality requests, and they're rarely public. Steve, I know you've had some experience trying to get access to some of these and running into that uh, wall of confidentiality. So the response attempts to deflect blame uh, by arguing that the travel companies that Mr. Bromwich worked for, and the way the scheme to work is there was a spoofed robocalling scheme trying to sell vacation packages from third parties that employed him. Um, trying to deflect the blame onto those travel companies and even some of the carriers that handled the robocalls should handle in that uh, should share in that liability. But as we discussed, you know, those arguments are unlikely to succeed as the FCC doesn't really have a direct hook into the travel companies that employed the robocalling platform, and common carriers are generally required by law to handle calls without discrimination. I mean, that's what makes them common carriers. Yeah, and and it you know, it doesn't deflect or diminish his responsibility anyway, even if there is some additional responsibility by those other parties or some potential theories that the commission can go there. So I don't think that was an argument ultimately made toward the FCC. In fact, in his testimony before Congress, he suggested that perhaps there should be new rules on the long-distance carriers to limit their involvement in the short-duration type calling, which is very common uh, occurrence if you have high volumes of robocalls. There'll be short duration calls. Right. Trying to take care of the problem before these calls are even yeah. made. So he, so he was really, I think, talking to a different audi audience and mm -hmm. suggesting maybe future legislative changes not really a limit in his own $120 million NAL. Right. And also part of it was sort of arguments being made that very few of these calls actually reach customers on the other end. But the problem with that is that the, the act and the regulations that implicate these robocalling rules, they're not based on whether a call reaches a customer and actually uh, causes, you know, bothers them. It's about whether the call was made. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the two theories, right, are placing unlawful costs. Now, that's not where the $120 million comes in. It was actually for the spoofing right. part of this uh, because the robocalling part of it required a citation still. So that's still a two-step process. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, you're right. The, the idea is it's the spoofing information that goes out. It doesn't really determine it's not really determinative whether or not that call was answered or how long that conversation was, et cetera. Exactly. Now, one of the arguments that was made that probably will have a little bit of purchase with the FCC is the arguments that are being made on inability to pay. And although it was redacted from the publicly released remarks, it appears that Mr. Abramovich actually supported this argument that he's unable to pay these millions of dollars in fines and support it with financial documentation. And it's been a practice of the FCC historically to reduce fines to about 2 to 8% of a party's average gross revenue. So while some of these other arguments may not win the day, some of these might actually have a little bit of sway with the FCC yeah, well, in the next step. Well, that one's required by the statute exactly. that they consider that. And we know that they consider that. We don't know whether or not he really made the proper factual claim for that. Um, I, the other thing I'll note is it kind of undercuts the, the whole rationale going on here, right, the, in that commission comes up with this eye-popping number, the $120 million. And uh, in the past, some of the commissioners have criticized previous commissions for putting out large numbers that they suggested were not likely to be collected. And here we find ourselves in the exact same situation with this particular 
uh, respondent saying, hey, I don't have $120 million. I can't pay that. You have to reduce this significantly. Right. And we've seen that on uh, both sides of the aisle, at least, as far as administrations. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what the lawmakers, the legislation that's coming down the pike regarding robocalling. I, I think we'll we'll talk a little bit about that in, in a future podcast. I think the important thing here is there does seem to be a little bit of currency to equalizing both the process and the statute of limitations for the commission for these two types of violations that come out from the same activity. So the robocall right now requires the citation and requires an action within one year, whereas the spoofing had uh, an exemption to the citation process and has a a three-year statute of limitations. So the FCC has been arguing to equalize those two, make it three years and don't require them to go through the citation process. Sure, and that's been a much larger ar- argument from the enforcement bureau to begin with, that one year, especially for some of these more complex investigations, makes it very hard to be able to do all the fact-gathering that they need in time to get the NAL out. Yeah, yeah, but they can still get to really, really big numbers in within the one year. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> so that's not it limiting that. I think, gosh, if they change that to three years, we're going to see, what, a $500 million NAL? That's true. I mean, it, for every lengthening of the statute of limitations, it lengthens the attached liability with it. Um, I, we could talk about some more big numbers right now, moving away from robocalls and uh, talk about roll call completion right now. There was a $40 million proposed for, uh, sorry, settlement uh, that T-Mobile entered into uh, to settle whether it failed to correct ongoing problems with the delivery of calls to rural areas and insert one known as false ringtones into calls that make people think that the call's gone through when in fact it hasn't. Um, there was also a slamming and cramming item, a $5.3 million fine against Telecircuit Network Corporation for allegedly switching consumers long distance service without authorization. So that's slamming. And then putting in unauthorized charges into consumers' bills, that's cramming. And the details of these cases aren't all that important, but it sort of fits a couple general patterns we've talked about. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah well, well, what we're starting to see, as I said, we're starting to see them hitting their pace and being a little bit more active with, with both of these. Um, both of these, the uh, the NAL and the consent decree, are fairly similar in following pr- past practice in terms of what's there. In fact, you know the consent decree part, the T-Mobile doesn't have anything really new or groundbreaking in the scope of its fine or anything else. What's most noteworthy is that Commissioner Clyburn, who's on her way out, um, had uh, an, had dissented from that and suggested that the commission was not acting strongly enough or didn't um, treat this as a significant enough issue. Uh, Her main concern seemed to be the lack of customer redress, that is, lack of payments to customers or refunds to customers, um, which is a theory I've always had problems with because it's not in the statute. The commission can impose fines. They cannot require refunds, at least not in the forfeiture process. Well, that and that is the distinction there is that because this is a consent decree, you see the FCC maybe asking for saying things that they would not be able to impose unless this was a negotiated agreement. But here there wasn't the sort of refunds or discounts we've seen in other consumer protection type settlements. And that was one part of the criticism. And then also Commissioner Clyburn making the point that sort of a purportedly low uh, settlement payment when compared to some of the major forfeitures we've seen in areas like robocalling, which have involved individual liability, where a single person is uh, being ordered to shoulder the burden of a couple million dollar fines. And here we have 
a fairly well-known carrier, you know, and a different sort of, at least in Commissioner Clyburn's mind, about the level of fine that gets imposed, or at least the settlement. There you again, you have that other side, the Democrats now in the major in the minority saying, hey, you know, you're not strong enough, it's not big enough, or the number's not large enough here. The the slamming cramming one, what's one thing that's amazing to me is that I did a lot of slamming cases early on in my career, you know, in the mid-90s when long-distance competition was in vogue and it was very active. Major carriers were pushing and, and fighting with each other. And there was a lot of slamming allegations going on there, a lot of uh, assertions of improper marketing happening. Now, the long-distance market as a standalone market has essentially collapsed. And yet, here we continue to see these kinds of NALs just persist. It's like, are they ever going to end? Well, and that's and, and actually the scheme that's you know alleged in that item too is one that we've seen a number of times just over the last couple of years, where we have uh, telemarketers working on behalf of this carrier, allegedly uh, misleading consumers into thinking that they're calling on behalf of their current phone company, and they haven't been able to find a good solution for it, regulatory or through enforcement, at least as of right now. Yeah. 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 One thing I'll mention, just going back to the roll call completion item against T-Mobile, is that. Well, we've also seen this trend of enforcement actions paralleling rulemaking activities. So there's the you know recently announced uh, roll call completion. There was a report and order as well as a further notice of proposed rulemaking. That came out the day after this uh, consent decree with T-Mobile. We've seen this in other cases. There was an enforcement action against a rural health call, and the, sorry, involving the rural health uh, care program at the same time the FCC is considering reforms to the program itself. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely finding it convenient to to use enforcement to point up a limitation in their rules somewhere and then move forward uh, or a problem, persistent problem in an area and then move forward with some kind of further action or further solutions. But um, but really, you know, the questions that we want to talk about uh, in general here are just. What, what you're seeing is the commission running through these ordinary things. You know, this is the bread and butter of enforcement to find these types of actions, whether it's in that roll call completion or the slamming cramming situation. And this is a signal that that machine is just continuing on and will continue on, I think. One other thing to mention about the uh, slamming cramming item is this idea of misrepresentation. So one of the things that came out as part of the item was during the investigation in response to FCC inquiries, the company allegedly um, sent over what were supposed to be the, the, the recordings of these customers uh, confirming their intent to switch their providers. And the FCC is alleging that these calls have been falsified or otherwise manipulated. And when they were then submitted to the FCC as part of the investigation, that function is a misrepresentation violation. And that's part of the reason why we have the, 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 the kind of uh, amount of fine that we're talking about in that case. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing that as, you know, more common in the slamming cramming situation. They're going after the authenticity of the of the recordings. You're right. But there is there was a more significant misrepresentation case this past month, I think, that we ought to talk about. Yeah, that's right. So the FCC proposed that $235,000 fine against Aura Holdings of Wisconsin for allegedly submitting false and misleading information in multiple antenna structure ownership change applications, basically in a situation where this company was claiming to own a number of towers that they just didn't. Um, and the reason why the FCC found out about this, this all originated out of a uh, an unlit tower investigation where the tower wasn't 
uh, was out of, which poses a danger to aircraft. Another part of bread and butter of the enforcement practice. Right, exactly, especially field enforcement. Um, and in looking into it, they then were contacted by the actual owner of the tower saying that they were working on this issue, but at the same time had this company or uh, Holdings of Wisconsin as the registered owner for this and a number of other towers. So besides the alleged misrepresentations made in actually uh, putting in the applications for the antenna structure ownership change, the company also failed to respond to the FCC's letter of inquiry, which came in, which only compounded the issue. So one aspect to just highlight about misrepresentation violations with the FCC is that the base forfeiture, and this is in the regs, it's not a creature of case law, the base forfeiture for misrepresentation violation is the statutory maximum. So it starts at the highest possible violation, at the highest possible amount. And then that's where the FCC starts its analysis. So that's where you get extremely large fines for even just a couple of violations. And that's because that's where the, the calculus starts for them. Right. Well, and the other thing that it points out, and this is the practice tip more than anything else, is that um, errors in statements, um, just a lack of due diligence can be become misrepresentation. There's not really an intent element to this. I mean, many people think that the willful part of the enforcement statute requires that, but it doesn't really require willfulness in the way that we ordinarily speak of it. So, you know, lack of due diligence or carelessness can very easily become misrepresentation. Yeah, and the FCC has been very clear on that, that there is no intent to deceive as part of a misrepresentation violation. And we talk about willful, you, me, maybe people on the street that may come with the, an idea of intent. But the FCC has been very clear that when they, they say willful, they just mean you intended to do the action that you did. Not that you expected a certain outcome or that you were trying to get something out of that action. It just literally means that you intended to do this thing that they're right. accusing and you it's, of. It's much, it's much more narrow. Uh, that has been consistent part of the practice. It's been a consistent view of the commission. I still think there's a theoretical question about that as it applies outside of broadcasters, but you know we're going to have to find the right case for that some year, not uh, not anytime soon, I suspect. All right, Brad. So let, let's move one more time. We can't do an enforcement podcast, it seems, without talking about pirate radio. Um, it's a popular topic with at least some of the commissioners. So let's jump into that. What was going on with pirate radio this month? Sure. We, we can't have a podcast without talking about pirates walking the plank. So Chairman Pine, especially Commissioner O'Reilly, they see pirate stations as taking listeners and revenue away from licensed stations. There's also a public safety argument being made that these unlicensed, unauthorized broadcast stations are interfering and preventing people from hearing important emergency alerts, local news, etc. So early last month, the FCC issued a press release. Now, not about any new enforcement actions involving pirates, but really recapping and touting the agency's progress in combating illegal broadcast stations. So one of the key points that they made was that the FCC had taken twice as many actions against pirate broadcasters in 2017 as the year before. Now, some of those enforcement actions, the big ticket ones, we've discussed on the podcast before, but just to highlight a couple of them, there was that rare consent decree with a pirate in Miami, where again, usually pirates, once they receive any sort of enforcement action, they are difficult to locate and they go off the air and only to reappear somewhere else, you know, on your radio dial. 
Um, but here they actually had worked with a pirate lady who was represented by counsel uh, to negotiate a settlement that involved an actual payment and an agreement to go off air. This is as rare as having the target of an NAL testify before Congress. Yeah, exactly. And then a really big one, though, which I found to be particularly interesting is for equipment seizures. So a lot of people don't realize that the FCC and the Communications Act actually authorized the confiscation. Uh, it's called an in-rem seizure of um, equipment that's being used for unauthorized broadcast stations. It's also for unauthorized equipment that can be confiscated. Now, the FCC doesn't do it itself. Uh, they actually have to work with the Department of Justice and particularly the U.S. Marshal Service usually to go and execute, execute those in-rem seizures. So uh, they touted that they had done four equipment seizures actually fairly recently, one in Miami, one in New York, a couple in Boston. Um, and that's designed to sort of show a comparison between the prior administration where there was a lot of whack-a-mole potentially enforcement. That at least was the criticism in which a fine would be issued that the pirate radio operator never is going to pay. And yet they still have their equipment and all they do is just either come back up on the same frequency or they come back somewhere else, maybe in a different location. Right. So increase the cost of doing business, make it harder to, to repeat the violation. Yeah. Now, of course, the other side of that is, is that the price of this equipment, the cost of being able to do this, has reduced so much over recent years that taking away the equipment doesn't usually actually cripple at least some of these pirate radio operations with a little bit of money behind them. They can easily go out, get equipment, and come right back on. Yeah. Some of them seem to be motivated by um, very strong-held political views. Uh, yeah, that's true. And then actually, but what could be most important, and one of the things that was a big part of the press release was they did highlight this maximum um, statutory fine that they imposed against a pirate radio operator as well as the property owners from where the that owned the property where the station was operating. And the, now there, the case concerned property owners that not only knew about the station, but also actively supported the operations, knowing that they were illegal. So it remains to be seen whether or not the FCC is going to expand its focus to target, say, maybe apartment landlords or other owners of multi-tenant properties that may not actually know that there's a station operating on their property and work with them uh, with the threat of potential liability and, and actually use their resources to help move these people out yeah. of these multi-tenant yeah. buildings. Okay. That's an interesting thought. And we're going to have to, at least in the interest of time, hold that until the next time. Um, so we're going to leave this with just a little bit of a teaser. As we sit here, we're only a few days before the FCC's May 10th open meeting. Uh, the agenda on that has an Enforcement Bureau action. Uh, it is, it's been... It's rare to have an Enforcement Bureau action on the open meeting agenda, but it is not unprecedented with Chairman Pai. Um, it is unusual to have it as the first item, which this one is. So um, that leads to some speculation. So we're going to go with some really um, gross speculation here, um, and we'll see in a few days if we're right. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, the fact that it's first would lead someone to believe this is obviously something that we're trying to make a theme out of the meeting. This is something that they want to put up for prominence, both for press coverage and for everything else. They want to dedicate a lot of time in the meeting potentially to it. And especially if you look at the rest of the agenda, there's not necessarily a lot of other, there's firstly not a lot of items, but also not necessarily a lot of big ticket items. So probably dealing potentially with some of the bread and butter type of enforcement actions that we've talked about, potentially a follow-up on some of the bigger enforcement items from last year. This would be the forfeiture order following up on a notice of apparent liability. It could be things like robocalling, which we've discussed, and certainly is a big 
uh, focus of the you know Pi FCC. Okay. Well, let's break that down because I think there's two things there. You know, the the first one is what's the subject matter here, and and it does by the placement suggest to me that it is something that is prominent uh, and that the commission wants to be prominent. So it's going to be in an area that has been, I think, a um, major policy area of the commission, whether it's robocalls or uh, pirate radio or universal service, something about this will be match up with actions that we've seen over the past year. But then the second question is, is this a new proceeding or is this the conclusion of one of the other proceedings? And that we don't really have much indication on. Right, and exactly. And if it's the conclusion of a proceeding, what has happened potentially to the dollar amounts involved? So we have fines that are proposed, then on the on the other end they get imposed. You know what if anything has happened to that? Have they sort of hold, held the line on the amount? I mean certainly because it's the first item in the meeting, you would expect not only the subject matter to be important, but you would expect the dollar amount involved to also be fairly um, large. Yeah. Who's making? Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly seems like this is what they want the trade press to put as their first item in their coverage of the meeting meeting as well. So. Um, we won't know. We will see in a few days uh, on that. Uh, and then in our next podcast, we will certainly, I imagine, be talking about the content of whatever it is that they have set up. Yep, sounds good. All right. Well, with that, let me close. You did the intro. I'll do the close here. Thank you all very much for joining us. We uh, appreciate the the viewership and the readership here. Uh, we can encourage you to continue to follow us. We will address these topics. And as the commission keeps at its pace like this, we will probably continue to make this a monthly enforcement podcast. So thanks all for joining us. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.